Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of CEO Sit-Downs. On today's show, I interview the CEO and co-founder of Better Booch, Trey Lockerbie. Trey and his now wife, Ashley, founded Better Booch six months into dating. And over a decade later, Better Booch is one of the best kombucha brands out there, with presences in Target, Hy-Vee, and some Costco's even. As for Trey... He has arguably one of the most interesting backgrounds of any of the guests who've come on my show. During his college years, he spent some time touring with Lady A. He eventually became interested in the financial markets and ended up meeting Warren Buffett over dinner. And to top it all off, he is one of the hosts of the best business podcasts out there, We Study Billionaires, a podcast I've listened to for a number of years now and have benefited from it so much. In short, Trey was so much fun to talk to, and I'm sure you'll enjoy our discussion. So, without further ado, I invite you to pull up a chair and listen in to my conversation with Trey Lockerbie. Hello, Trey, and welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, John. It's really great to be here. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. I've been a longtime listener of yours on TIP, so this is kind of a euphoric moment for me to hear your voice in actual conversation as opposed to in my earbuds as I'm working out or something like that. Um, but to, to kick us off here, Trey, I really want to take some time here and dig into your background because it's so interesting when I was researching you and preparing for this interview. So if you would, I mean, and do not rush yourself, please, take me back to kind of your Whenever you started this whole trajectory that you found yourself on. Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess I, it started um, pretty young for me. I, I was always uh, an entrepreneur. And sometimes you hear people say that. I, I really do feel like um, I knew from very early on that a a normal job, if you will, um, just didn't sit well with me. And I think that's actually what it initially um drove me to music because, you know, fairly early I'd go see a band play or something. And I'd be like, look at these guys, they're not wearing suits. They're free. They're just roaming around playing music. Like, man, that looks like the life that I want to have, you know, anything to kind of avoid wearing a suit. Um, and so, you know, obviously I had a love for music as well and, um, that made it easier, but I ended up dropping out of college, um, after I started my first company, which was a, uh, basically a, a booking agency, the tour management company out of my dorm room. This is in the, the days of MySpace. So I would, uh, you know, I'm going to school in Indiana. There's no music industry there. Um, and uh, I was th- thinking to myself, well, I could, um, sorry, my, my son is here. He's going to be squealing in the background a little bit. I hope you don't mind. It's terrific. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> um, so hang on one second. I know that it's almost his nap time. So, okay, I think we're good. All right, I apologize if there's more of that. Um, but babies, you know. Uh, so, uh, so this is back when this is back in the days of MySpace, and I was in my dorm room, and I was thinking to myself, well, maybe you know, not a lot of people tour through Bloomington, Indiana, but they do go through Indianapolis, and I've got a good following because I grew up in this town. So maybe I'll reach out to people. And I'll say, hey, if you're thinking about touring through Indianapolis, maybe consider Bloomington. I'll open for you. I'll, I'll pack the place out. You know, it'd be a good little extra stop on your run. Um, but this is, I think, where we had a little bit of uh, 
I get, well, I guess I'll back up a little bit, but I was not getting many replies. Um, just in general, when, when I would reach out to, to bars or clubs on my own. And so I, I had a realization early on that I needed to kind of come up with a company name. So my, my roommate at the time, and I came up with this name called Bruce McKay entertainment. And we just, it, we just sounded like some guy who was like very well established in the music business. I don't know. We just made it up. And so we'd say, Hey, I'm, <laughs> you know, calling from Bruce McKay entertainment and we'd like to book a show for Trey Lockerbie, you know, at your venue. And it just had a totally different effect. Um, and so that kind of launched our first company, if you will. And so I, I started reaching out to people on MySpace, uh, saying what I said earlier about playing through Bloomington. And I got uh, a ping back from a guy named Ernie Halter, who was very big on MySpace at that time. He had a very large following and um, wonderful, amazing voice and singer and talent and everything. And he wrote me back and said, hey, um, funny enough, uh, our tour manager just kind of, our, our booking agent just kind of quit on us. And we've got like 10 more dates we're trying to finalize for this tour. Uh, does your company do that? And I just said, of course, yes, of course we do. <laughs> um, so I ended up booking the re remaining 10 shows for that tour. And um, Ernie, is, this was actually his first tour ever. So by the end of that uh, communication, he just said, hey, you know a lot more about these agreements and all these things. Do you want to just come on the road with me? And uh, I said, absolutely. So it turns out that that tour was with uh, Ernie and another guy named Keaton Simons, both who were who from LA. And I remember very clearly the first night in the hotel room when I met Ernie in person for the first time, he was like, wait, how old are you? And I was like, I'm 19. And he was like, you're 19. I was like, yeah. I was like, how old are you? He's like, I'm 30. And I was like, you're 30. Like I thought he was, you know, my age or something. I don't know. It's just, we had this very funny moment together. Um, cause we just got along so well and there was a huge age gap. I wasn't even allowed to be in the clubs we were playing in. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't even old enough to be in the clubs, but I had a fake ID. So that helped. Um, and you know, I, I just treated him really well. He, he, he and Keaton, I would, I would, you know, I dropped them off in the venue for soundcheck. I would go and put their bags in their hotel rooms. I just kind of treated them like they were huge artists, even though they were nobodies and they loved that. And so they went back to LA and they told everybody about me. And the next call I got was from, um, Ernie again, who was coming or going on tour with a group called Lady Annabellum. And, uh, that was a really funny story because, you know, Charlie and Dave, uh, Charles and Dave from Lady A were, um, I think basically accountants at the time who were just sort of trying to pivot into music. Charles's older brother, Josh Kelly is a very well-established artist and especially was at that time. I think he had recently a top five hit and he had a record deal and all these things. And he told his brother, Charles, you know, Hey, move to Nashville, come live in my house, make as much music as you want, live for free. Um, and, and so they, they got a little thing going and, um, you know, I, that was my second tour. Same thing. I went out with them, um, did some songwriting with them on the road and treated them really well. And, and, um, and what's kind of ironic about all this is Charles at the time was, he was like, listen, I'm, you're great. I'm going to recommend you to my brother, you know, like I'm going to get you a job with him. And, um, and I was so stoked about that at the time, especially cause you know, Josh was a big deal touring in tour buses and things like that. So I was like, yeah, this is, let's do it. Um, and then I got a call randomly from Josh Kelly when I was in my dorm room saying, Hey, I'm going on the road. My brother says, you're great. Do you want to come out with us? And I said, absolutely. So, um, long story short, I, I started touring with Josh and, um, 
Charles and Dave and Lady A just, you know, went on to win nine something Grammys and do everything they did, which is so great for them. And, uh, and I got to really get to know Josh and tour around with them and have a great time. And, and, you know, that led to other gigs, uh, that I got into with Lenka and, and a few others that took me more around the world. And so, um, but my first business was Bruce McKay entertainment. And, uh, and then that turned into a music career and took me all over the world. And, um, I learned a lot from that. Dude, that's amazing. That stories like that I just find so inspiring, so mind-blowing, really. Uh, <laughs> but but tell me, Trey. Okay, so somewhere in there between touring and songwriting and all these things, you get interested in the financial markets. When does that happen? That's a great question, actually. So one downside of a music career, especially a touring music career, that not a lot of people realize, I think, is that there is so much downtime. You are basically a, a professional traveler. So imagine all the hours you're sitting in an airport or on a bus or on, on a, in a van or in the back of a green room at a, at a club, you know, after sound check, you know, probably a couple hours, two or three hours before the show starts. So I just found myself with all this downtime and I'm just, you know, a fairly just, I think, in, in, innately productive guy, you know, and I just, it was bothering me that I was just kind of sitting there and, um, you know, I, I just could, I wasn't really the kind of musician that would just lose himself in playing guitar either. I, I wasn't really satisfied with just practicing scales for, for hours, you know? So I, I wanted to just, I thought to myself, well, how can I, you know, make more money just sitting here? Um, and I, um, had just kind of made my first big check and I went to my dad and I said, what do I do with this money? And he said, I don't know, uh, but you know, maybe I know a guy, I talked to that guy. He was like, well, how much are you willing to lose of this money? I was like, none of it. You know what you must know, not, you must not know what you're doing, you know, or something, <laughs> even though now I know it's a very standard question, but I had all this momentum at that point to say, I should just learn about this myself and do it myself because, um, no one will manage my money better than me. And you know, this thing I've heard about called the stock market, um, must be good for something. It seems to be doing a lot of people good. And, and I should probably know about it a little bit because at the time I knew nothing. And so, you know, while I was on the road, I started, um, learning everything I could. I started, I actually took some TD Ameritrade courses. I went all the way through <laughs> this advanced option trading program and I came out of it, you know, trading options every day. And, uh, I was on the road, I was in green rooms. I mean, this is so, this is just so not the vibe when you're with musicians, usually like to sit in the green room doing finance stuff. But like, I was the weird guy to like trading options on the laptop in the green room. And, um, some people got a kick out of it, which is fun, but that was, that's how I started. And then I, I, you know, I, I got more into uh, a different style of investing, which we can talk about as well, but that's how I got into finance. So, yeah, let's talk about that different style of investing because Fun fact, I used to work for TD Ameritrade. Um, I worked there for a year, so I'm very familiar with that uh, that particular course that you took. I think we all took that as interns, actually. Um, but anyway, so t tell me how your investing philosophy evolved. Yeah, well, so I, I guess at this point, um, I'd been all over the world, and I was thinking to myself, you know, I... I don't think this career is actually what I thought it was and the lifestyle that I really ultimately want for myself, which is to be in control of my time. Cause when you're a touring musician, you have no control of your time, <laughs> you know, you're, um, mm -hmm. so 
yeah, so it was very important to me. I started to kind of put the pieces together around time wealth versus other wealth and, and thinking, okay, what can I do that would allow me to pick and choose either what music I want to play or what tours I want to go on or, you know, not be so beholden to uh, every opportunity thrown at me. And so, um, and that was right about the time I met um, Ashley Haney, who is now Ashley Lockerbie. But, uh, you know, we were, we met at a birthday party and uh, she had basically just quit from being on the road for four years with Rihanna. And so she was in the exact same boat I was. She, she had experienced an even higher echelon of touring and comfort and all those things and still found it, you know, not as fulfilling and, and certainly not a long-term viable option for her. So we just met at a very, you know, serendipitous time and we were both looking to do something different. And at that point I'd been brewing kombucha, um, because of my sister's advocacy for it, uh, through her cancer, um, journey and, and, you know, kombucha is tea, sugar, water, and the functional ingredient makes more of itself. And I, I didn't know much about business necessarily, but I was like, that just sounds like a good business to me. Um, so, and not to mention it, it was, I was a huge believer in the actual product and the benefits, which we can talk about if you want. But basically as I started building that business, investing had a whole new meaning to me because as I was learning about investing in other businesses, everything I was learning, I was like, Oh, I have, I have like a relevant application for all this knowledge I'm learning. Like I have a, everything kind of clicked a little easier because I was doing it on my own. I was doing the accounting stuff on my own and doing all this other stuff that I've been learning about. Um, and so, uh, right about the time that I, you know, maybe we were a year or two into, to better booch. Um, I got this really, uh, serendipitous, uh, really incredible opportunity to have dinner with Warren Buffett, uh, through a friend. And, and that just, you know, I actually kind of invited myself truth to be told. I just heard about it happening and I was like, I am getting on a flight and I will be there uh, kind of thing. So, um, where was was the dinner at? Where was the dinner at? It was in New York. Yeah, it was, uh, New York. He was, he was there for a, a book, book launch. Um, I think it was tap dancing to work, I want to say. And he was, uh, he was there and he was doing kind of promotion for that. And so I just kind of joined in on this dinner and, and I only got, you know, it was, it turned out to be something like a three hour dinner. It was great. And I got to just see how his mind works, uh, firsthand. And more importantly than anything, I think from that dinner is that it is really powerful to sit across from someone who's, you know, worth a hundred billion dollars and see them see that they're, they're just, they're just an actual human being, right? Like they're just, mm-hmm. he's obviously freakishly smart and has something that none of us have like a photographic memory and whatever it is. Um, it's some superpower, but he is mortal. Right. And he is, he was like flesh yeah. and blood and, and you were like, okay, you did this. So you, and anyway, that was really powerful to me to just, to just see that someone had, um, had done what he did. And when I started telling him about all the option training and, uh, you know, the strategies I was putting in practice, he, uh, he just had the most Cheshire cat, cat grin on his face. And, you know, I, I realized shortly thereafter that the person I was modeling my strategy after, you know, their, their story was they turned a hundred thousand uh, dollar retirement into maybe a million dollars or something. And I thought that was so cool. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and I, I don't know, I did the math shortly after that dinner in the three hours. And I realized Berkshire Hathaway made like, you know, I don't know, a hundred million just in those three hours or whatever it was, it was something, some like order of magnitude that was like, Oh, okay. So he's doing something else that is just 
on a whole nother level. And, um, I was wise enough. I, I, you know, I've read up a little bit that I brought my, my intelligent investor copy with me to have him sign it. And we talked about that and, <laughs> and he was like, you need to go back and reread a couple of these chapters, um, which I did. And he, gave he me said a that book. He did. Yeah. He was, yeah. I think it was, uh, chapters eight and 13. I want to say the ones that are more around sure, psychology, yeah. Mr. Market, and Mr. Market. And, and so, yeah. And I, he gave me a couple other books to read a lot of Adam Smith, uh, recommendations. Um, and so, I don't know. I, I, it just had such a huge effect on me and that I, the main thing I saw was, okay, this guy, oh, you know what he said to me? I, um, I said, my, one of my questions was, and I don't think this is a very, um, I think this is a fairly common question he gets now looking back, but it was something to the effect of like, yeah, like what you used to, what you did used to work, right? Like in the sixties, but like now everyone has the internet and markets are efficient. Right. And, you know, um, and so like, does it still work or, you know, and I don't know, his answer was basically like, if markets were efficient, I wouldn't be as rich as I am or something like that. And, um, and I was like, that really stuck with me. Um, so anyway, I, I ended up just devouring everything on Warren Buffett I could after that. I just, every book, everything I could find. And, and after I read every single thing I, I could find, I came to the conclusion that his whole thing was about intrinsic value and how to calculate that, but he just really never says how to calculate it. Um, or he does in very vague terms most of the time. Um, and you know, I mean the discount rate and stuff he's gone into detail about, but he doesn't really ever clearly state, I think how he comes to his own conclusions. Uh, but anyway, I, I just was like, you know what? Someone's probably put a Warren Buffett intrinsic value calculator together on the internet by now. Right. So I Googled that. I found TIP because <laughs> they had done yes. that. Um, Our beloved TIP. And, yeah, the Investors Podcast Network. And um, at the time, I think it was called Buffett's Books. I think that was their first website. And yep. so it had a calculator and all the things. Warren Buffett had a free course. So I took the course, obviously. And, um, and, and yeah, so I just devoured and got really into him and his philosophies. And then um, as soon as I finished the course... This is a fun fact, but um, TIP launched their first podcast. We studied billionaires and I listened to the first episode the day it came out because I was already on the website. And uh, this is really, I don't know if I was the only listener or whatever, but I think the third episode in history of that show, I was the call in questioner. <laughs> so I, was, I called in to be like, because they used to do that as more often too, like call in with questions. And so I did. Um so anyway, that just kind of gives you a history of me and TIP and, and now how that's kind of come together. But um, anyway, I'll stop there. I don't I don't even know how, where we went from your question. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact for you, Trey. Um, I originally got into Buffett books, too. I remember um, reading Preston's uh, Preston Pish's book, uh, Warren Buffett Accounting. And I flipped to the back and he had, you know, the website listed there. And I also had one of my questions read on one of their episodes. I wish I could find it. That would be deep in the archive by now, the way TIP has spun out all these different channels, all these different episodes. Um, but that's that's really great. But I have to ask, with that, with that dinner with Warren Buffett, was it just like everyone was asking him questions or was it actual conversation? I'd say... It was more conversational. Um, okay. One fun fact about that that I also remember is that the dinner was catered with Italian food and pasta, 
but they specially they they ordered a hamburger from somewhere else specific, specifically for him because <laughs> he doesn't eat pasta. Um, which I just uh, that was always something I remembered all of us eating pasta and him eating a hamburger. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was very conversational. The things that I really remember were that he started almost every sentence with a date and time or it was all numerical. Like he, he had a lot of baseball references, but he would always be like, yeah, August 16th, mm-hmm. like 87, I was doing X, Y, Z, blah, blah. And oh yeah. And January 23rd, I, I was here. This, like he just had this every single numerical thing memorized and he didn't even think about yeah. it. You know, it was just how he kind of categorized or cataloged everything in his brain, I think, but he was going back decades, you know, and just pulling dates and times and, uh, he'd remember the scores of baseball games and everything like that. When you met him, would he have been in like his eighties at that time? Yeah, I was gonna um I was gonna go back and look. I I wanna say he was in his early to mid eighties at the time. Um Tap Dancing to Work came out. Um what year was that? That was probably like Wasn't that eight or nine years ago. Oh, yeah, I was going to guess 08 to 010, somewhere in there. Because I read that book, Carol oh, 20, Loomis. 2013, Carol actually, it looks like it came out in December. Oh, 13, so this, really? this was probably like early 2014, I would I would guess. Okay. It's probably when I met him. It's almost 10 years so ago. Yeah, he'd be what, 84? 84, I think, because yeah, he was like born in 1930 exact. Dang, that's a cool story, though, man. I mean, not everyone can say that. I came really close here living in Omaha, um, right. but I didn't meet him. Long story, and I won't tell it. Uh, but anyway, so, so you get involved with TIP. Tell me how that came about because when, when I saw, I mean, I remember seeing the announcement that you're going to be a host and I dug into your background, however many years ago that was, um, was better booch like really taking off and you just thought you needed more to do or what was the, what was the dynamic there? Uh, yeah, that's a funny story. I, I actually had, I've been listening to the show religiously every week on my commute and, obviously a big fan. I, I met Preston and Stig at a couple of events, uh, certainly in Omaha. So we got to know each other a little bit. And, um, and I was driving home from better Booch one day. And, uh, I don't know, I, I had this overwhelming moment of gratitude. Quite frankly, I was thinking to myself, wow, I like, I have my dream job. I'm going to my dream home with my dream wife and my dream family. And, you know, I was just sort of like, I don't know, it doesn't happen all the time, but I was like, just had this moment of pure gratitude. And, uh, I was listening to TIP while I was driving and I was thinking, having these thoughts and I was like, I don't even know how my life could get any better. And I was like, I don't know, maybe unless, uh, except maybe if I were like a host of this show. <laughs> you know? like, so, um, it was like really like that, that was the thought I had. I mean, it, there was no path to me becoming a host. And, um, and then like very shortly thereafter, they were looking for a new host and, um, I submitted for it and uh, they had me do an intrinsic value of a company and a bunch of other tests. And, um, and yeah, I ended up, I ended up getting it. I, I think I got it mainly cause you know, their audiences are, they're, they're people who are not usually in finance and they're trying to learn and I'm trying to learn. And I think I just reminded them of their audience, you know, and I thought, I think they thought it'd be cool if I was learning alongside the audience. Right. And I wasn't an authority or expert on the subject. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, it all came together. I feel like within weeks of that moment, which was just 
that's one of the more mind boggling <laughs> moments of my career. Cause there just seemed to be no path for that to happen and no reason for it to happen. And then it just sort of came together. Um, and that was a couple of years ago and I've been doing it ever since. That's awesome, man. I, I do listen to you, like I said, so that's commendable. Appreciate that. I do. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for what you do. I've, I mean, same thing. I've learned so much from TIP, starting with Preston's book, however many years ago now, I think it was Preston and Stig maybe. Um, but you know, starting that many years ago now to listening, I mean, you guys have just blossomed with William Green, whose book is behind me here on my shelf. And I yeah, mean, I, we, we've got Preston doing Bitcoin fundamentals and my buddy Clay Fink, of course. I mean, I applaud you guys. It's just terrific. Uh, yeah. God bless TIP. Anyway, so I feel like we've covered your story. Um, but one thing that we've, of course, alluded to over the course is your, your better booch. I mean, that's your company. That's your baby. Tell me the story of that. I know it started when your sister got a diagnosis of cancer or something like that, but give me the, give me the full deal. Yeah. So she ended up, you know, going to Germany for some immunology treatments you couldn't find in the U S I mean, not, not a lot of people think about this every day, but the only real technology to cure cancer still is like 70 years old and it's very toxic. It's either chemo or it's radiation. And so, um, she went through all that. She went through surgeries. She went through all that and it was time to try something new. Um, did immunology. Um, and you know, they were, I think they introduced her to, uh, kombucha at the time and she found that it really helped. And, uh, I, took note of that. And I, she was like, you should be drinking this. And so I basically went and bought some, I'm sorry, my son is having a hard time going down for his nap. Give me one second. Okay. I think we're better. Um, How old's your son, Trey? He's almost two. He's I think 19 months or something like that at this point, 20 months. Oh, great. Um, almost two. Kombucha. Um, that's where we left off. Yeah. Okay. So so I got introduced by my sister. She was a big advocate. It was the only thing making her feel better um, through her cancer journey. Kombucha is alkalizing, so it's actually very popular in the cancer community. Not a lot of people know that, but it's sort of like you get all the same kind of minerals as if you were putting lemon juice in your water, for example. So um, it has that benefit plus the probiotics and a bunch of essential acids and things that are all kinds of beneficial for you. So it was uh, very interesting to me. But I went and bought some and I tried it and I hated it, uh, quite frankly. So I, I was like, this is tastes like vinegar and it doesn't, I don't get it. So um, I actually kind of swore off kombucha for a long time, which is always ironic now. But I, I was walking by a shop. I was still living in Nashville at the time. And there was a how to brew kombucha class that one Saturday at the shop. And I thought, all right, well, maybe I'll try this. Maybe I'll learn how to make it myself and then I can make it taste the way I want it to taste. And then I could drink it. Um, so I went down that road. I, I didn't have a passion for brewing. I never brewed beer, I never brewed anything else, but like kombucha, just, I think because of its benefits and just mystique, it just really intrigued me. And I learned how to brew it. Um, and then when I, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, I'm in LA and Ash and I are thinking about what to do next. Um, it just occurred to me that there was still only one brand of kombucha on shelf and it was not very good. Um, to, in my opinion. So I thought this could be a great next step for us. You know, we could be an alternative, uh, and our product is so different that, you know, maybe there's a market for it. Um, but we started out, gosh, as humbly as you could possibly imagine. I mean, we, 
we, our only ambition at the time was to be at a farmer's market on Saturdays. We just thought, you know, okay, great. We can make some extra income, cover our rent maybe. Um, and we would, in order to just sell at a farmer's market, you know, I thought you could just rock up to a farmer's market with your tent and be like, Hey, where do I set up? And, but it's not like that, especially in LA. It's like you have, there's permits and all kinds of red tape you got to get through just to be at a farmer's market. So, um, you know, we found out very quickly we had to produce out of a commercial kitchen and we had to get licenses and permits and all these things. Um, so we would brew the tea in our kitchen uh, because there was a few hours of steeping time and we didn't want to just be sitting around paying for that. Um, so we would steep it at our house. We'd put it in these brew buckets. We'd take it up to this commercial kitchen that was 30 minutes away in Santa Clarita. And our, our shift was midnight to 3 a.m. That was like the only time slot available. Uh, it was also cheaper. <laughs> so um, I was going to say that has to be the cheapest yeah, time slot. It was definitely the cheapest time slot. So we would we would, you know, ferment the tea there and we'd bottle it there. And we would, because it was so late in the evening, we'd sometimes commandeer a bunch of friends and, and we'd call them um, bottling parties. And we'd, you know, get, every, we'd get like, you know, five That's or six great. friends to come up with us and we'd buy them beer or something. We'd just like have them help us bottle stuff, you know, um, or pizza or whatever it was. Um, and so we started at farmer's markets and then that uh, led to getting attention at some grocery stores locally. And, um, it just kind of started to snowball from there. So we, we just started to grow and grow and it's just slowly started to consume our lives just in the best way. Um, but yeah, we're really, we became a pretty prominent regional brand and I'd say, uh, you know, we also bootstrapped it for the first seven years. So it was purely bootstrapping cash flow based. Um, we took every stair step. I mean, there was no, you know, I don't know. It was, it was a painful process, quite frankly. It, and, uh, you know, a lot of people told us not to take outside capital because we'd lose control. And we, there, there's all these nightmarish scenarios people would throw at us about doing that kind of thing. And so we, 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 um, didn't do that for a very long time until, you know, you reach a certain threshold and you start getting inquiries from national accounts, you know, who want to take you on and, and that takes a lot of money. You know, it's just hard to, to really scale a beverage without outside, outside capital. So we basically went in, I think 2018, 19, we took outside capital for the first time. And, um, then we kind of started down this path of becoming a national brand. And now we are in Sprouts and Whole Foods and Target and some Costco's and uh, Walmart's. And, um, it's just been an incredible journey. Uh, but honestly, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life for absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. So what year did you start Better Booch? Like officially, not when you were yeah. just taking the class, but what year, I guess, let's let's rewind a bit. When, I know in that you said it was a snowball, but when did you have that first thought, that first experience that you realized this could be something? Well, I remember tasting a homebrew I made in Nashville and being in the light bulb sort of going off and saying to myself, wow, everyone I know would drink this because it just tastes great. I wouldn't even have to sell them on the health benefits, right? Like they would just drink it cause it's, it tastes like a really good peach tea, you know? And so, um, that was a light bulb moment. And then fast forward to when Ash and I were talking about ideas that kind of came back up to me and I, and I thought, you know, I've always thought this is a good idea. And, um, that was six months into dating, first of all, for me and Ash. So, you know, we started a business together, uh, six months into dating, which probably not everyone does. Um, but then that was probably in mid 
2000, well, we met early 2011. So by January, 2012, we had set up a bank account. You know, we had, that's another kind of funny story. We <laughs> just shows you how naive we were, but I, uh, you know, I remember thinking, okay, the first thing we should do is set up a bank account. I went to the bank, set it up and we sat down with a banker there and we we're like, all right, we want to take out a business loan. And they were like, oh, you got to be in business like five years or something before you can <laughs> take a business loan. And, and, and I don't know, we were like, well, how do people start companies? <laughs> we just, we just didn't really know. We were young and naive. And, uh, and so, yeah, there, that set off the, the whole bootstrapping journey. But, uh, but yeah, it's, that's, uh, it's been a little over 11 years maybe now at this point from like kind of, um, those first, first early days. And yeah. So now, I mean, here we are in the early month, early month, we're still in January of 2023. How many folks does Better Booch employ? I mean, what, what kind of time commitment are you as CEO making? What's, what's the schematic there? Yeah, I mean, it's very much a full-time job. I, um, we have about 40 employees at the moment oh, wow. and, uh, you know, I, I'm very involved. I, I, I have the luxury of being able to kind of work from wherever. Um, so I'm at the brewery most days just by choice. And I like being there and my office is there. And I even do a lot of my TIP interviews there, um, out of my office there. So, um, I'm there most days and, um, uh, it's a very heavy time commitment, but I, you know, we did one of our latest hires was a CFO. And so we, that's really, I don't know, been an interesting experiment for me because I was sort of de facto CFO this whole time. And so, um, having support on, on that side of the business has been really great and, and allowing me to I don't know, free up some bandwidth, uh, even more, um, so that I can be more out in the field, you know, doing things, uh, promoting the product, meeting people, networking, all those things. Um, but I still very much think of my job as being the capital allocator of the company. Right. And, and, that was one very tangible lesson from Buffett and those learnings that I, I've applied to Better Booch is just looking at every single um, choice as an investment. And, and it could be the choice of hiring somebody or not. Um, it could be whether to invest in this event or this whatever. It's just everything's an ROI. And so you kind of you get really good at that after a while, just recognizing um and getting quicker and quicker with making those decisions. And that's, that's still what I think my specialty is a better booch. Well, Buffett has that great quote. Um, you know, I am a better investor because I'm a business person and I'm a better business person because I'm an investor. Uh, that's right. So yeah. When, when you said capital allocator, I'm like only a Buffett person would use those words in that way. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's awesome. Man. That, that's, that's exactly, those are kind of the words I live by, quite frankly. I mean, yeah. I, that's why the TIP opportunity was so great for me because I thought, okay, great. I mean, I'm going to become a better investor and that makes me a better businessman, you know, and vice versa. So yeah. uh, it's a reinforcing wheel in that regard, even though that, you know, the stock market and kombucha seem like polar opposites in a way they do self-reinforce in my mind, you know, from that sure. exact point. So Trey, I must admit, um, and I feel kind of stupid admitting this. I have never tried kombucha. Um, I never have. Tell me though, what sets your kombucha apart from, you know, all the others out there? If there are a lot of others, I really don't know. Give me a diagnosis on your competitors out there. 
Yeah, there, there are a lot of others. Although nowadays I'd say there's really 10 major brands. Um, and you know, the top brand in the space is, uh, has been around the longest. So about a $400 million company and they have been around for 25 years and they use juice to flavor their products. And, um, and they, in my opinion, you know, it's for a certain type. I I like to kind of describe it as, um, you know, imagine the early days in Germany when, when beer was first invented and, you know, probably someone was taking it around and I'm sure it was very polarizing because it was probably, I don't know, a double, triple IPA or something like that. You know, it's that not everyone's into in my mind, GT's, um, is a little bit like that. It's sort of, it, it positions itself as being like this more hardcore kombucha. Um, and that's because it's usually pretty vinegary and sour and, um, and that's, that's not, I mean, it's polarizing and it's, or it's a quote acquired taste as they'll put it. Um, so my jumping ahead, I mean, my idea for better booch was like, okay, well, we'll make the, the Pilsner, you know, of kombucha, the, the, the lighter, easy drinking, just as authentic, but more approachable, um, uh, kombucha. And so that's what we did. And we, we kept it more traditional in a sense, because we only use teas. We don't use any juices, um, because, you know, 2000 years ago, they were just fermenting teas, right? So that's, that's the way it's been done. Um, there's health aid. Who's another big company. They're the number two brand, um, similar. They kind of follow the GT's footsteps, um, flavoring with juices and all that kind of same kind of playbook. Um, brew doctor is a big brand. Um, they do use teas and herbs and botanicals like we do. They have a different brewing method. So there's a bunch of great brands out there. Um, I, what I, what I am encouraging people to think about is for whatever reason, um, people kind of lump these categories together in their minds. So they'll be like, okay, it's, it's all kombucha, but it's really different. It's, it's just as different as wine or beer in that. Yeah. The inputs may be somewhat similar, but the craft of it and the, the artistry of it, um, it's very different. There's a lot of variables you can change to make, you know, the end product different. So ours is usually what people will say is it's much smoother. It's, um, so one reason for that is most kombucha brands go really heavy on acetic acid, which is one of the acids in the kombucha, which is vinegar. So it'll, it'll be very peak. It'll kind of hit the back of your throat and say like, okay, I definitely felt that. Um, we our our culture, which is different from everyone else's, by the way, um, produces a, what we call a bouquet of acid. And that hits on all different types of your, all different parts of your tongue. So you would think that that would become a very acidic product, but it actually, uh, creates a very smooth drinking experience because it's, it's not as peaked. So, um, that's one of the reasons we're different. There's a lot of reasons we're in a can, everyone else is in a glass bottle. We're slightly lower price. We're, you know, teasers, botanicals, more approachable, uh, branding, um, that, you know, we're not preachy. Um, we believe health and wellness is a spectrum, you know, and we're not looking down on people who, May, may make other choices in their diets and what, what have you. We just, I call better Butch a secret agent of health because the mission is to just sort of make it as a low lift and, and as easily incorporable, you know, into your diet as possible. So, you know, there's no convincing involved. It's, and, and, and by the way, yeah, it's a great tasting product. And by the way, it's good for you. That's, that's our, our mentality. So does putting it in a can affect the taste at all? 
Yes, it does in a good way. So um, oh, you'll okay. notice that uh, we've been dying to go into cans and we were the first ones to do so. Um, but cans for so long had the stigma around them. Like they were like a less qual- like a lower quality product if it, if it were in a can. But if you remember, uh, there was this huge craft beer movement and all these craft beers started going in cans. Cause when you look at it, when you actually do any analysis, you say, okay, well actually this preserves the quality of the product much better because it's, it's a completely tight seal. There's no UV rays that enter into it. Um, it can hold more carbonation whatever it might be. It's first of all, it's, it's, it's lighter to ship it. There's, it's more eco-friendly. It's infinitely recyclable. 70% of people are more likely to recycle a can than a glass bottle. So when you just, when you go like first principles on it and you look at all the, the reasons to go can versus bottle, I mean, can just like wins, uh, by a mile, you know? And so, yeah, it preserves the quality of the product better. And, um, that's a, that's a key reason. I, I, Ultimately, though, we chose cans because I say uh, cans go where our consumers go. Because if you think about our demographic, they're usually young, active people. They want to go to the beach or on a lake or on to a park, on a hike, to a music venue, to a sporting venue. All these places, glass bottles can't go, right? So, um, or you don't want to be, you know, carrying around glass bottles in your in your bag. So, anyway, uh, cans go where con- consumers go, and that's that's why we chose it. So one thing, Trey, I think your guys' marketing is spectacular. I mean, it just looks really sharp. And every time I see a post online, I don't even have to look at the account. I know very well who it is. Um, so props to you there. But That's all Ash. That's all my wife. Yeah. That's oh, all really? Ashley. So how, yeah. how involved is she with the business? Because I know you, you are very involved. Is she still involved some? Or yeah, how's that she's dynamic? Full-time, she's full-time as well. She's our chief marketing officer. So she's anything branding, marketing, um, you know, related, she, that's all her. I do the back end, you know, ops, finance kind of stuff. Yeah. She does all the fun stuff. Because I can't, I, for the life of me, I cannot figure out what it reminds me of. Um, just the colors, the, the font, all that, but it's definitely something that I experienced as a kid and Mm. whether it's like Crayola or Rose art crayons, I don't know, but I look at that and I'm just scratching my head to figure out where it came from. Um, oh, I like the idea of crayons being, uh, you know, yeah, that's interesting. The Crayola reference. I'm gonna and, well, maybe it's because you guys, I know you, um, you, you market it based on uh, the color indicates flavor, of course, like, mm-hmm. you know, 90% of the world does, but something about it, the way you guys do it, it just catches my eye every time. Um, but I wanted to ask, so as a CEO, you've got 40 employees now. When you, when you encounter those difficult decisions you have to make, who exactly are you going to? What what sources of information are you referencing? How are you coming to that conclusion ultimately? What what's informing that? That's a good question. I mean, I think it kind of depends on the context. Um, I will say that obviously my wife, co-founder, uh, you know, closest advisor. So she and I talk about it all day, every day. We do have a cutoff actually at seven p.m. where we stop talking about it, but that's, just you know, about that's to just ask to keep our marriage. Cut off. Yeah. <laughs> that's, our, that's, uh, that's just for our marriage sake. But, um, she's obviously my closest advisor. We have an amazing board of, uh, one guy named Michael Silverstein, who basically built the consumer business at Boston consulting group over 36 years. And another guy named Jeff McKay, who, um, used to manage the Canadian pension plan. So half a trillion dollar fund. And he, 
he's more of the numbers guy. Uh, Michael's more a big picture creative guy. And uh, I meet with Michael every, me and Ash usually meet with Michael once a week. So those are usually our moments to uh, bounce ideas off of him, to strategize. Um, I try to make decisions as much as possible based on data, meaning usually it's a financial decision, ultimately. It's not always, but a lot of times it is. And so we have, you know, an incredibly robust financial model. And a lot of it's just tinkering around in that thing to come up with decisions. I mean, one example I'll give you is, you know, when COVID hit in 2020, um, we were actually able to survive mainly because we were considered a, an essential product because we, we, um, sell to grocery stores. And so that was a godsend, but you know, we had unbelievable challenges through that time. And one of them was just sort of a, a huge decline in either revenue or fundraising or all the kind of things we were trying to do just got kind of tied up. So, um, you know, at one point there was a choice to do, let's distribute, but we didn't want to fire anybody. That was really important to us. And it wasn't, you know, not, not just cause we felt it was the right thing to do, but just, you know, we felt an obligation to support people through that time. And, um, so we did end up doing like a furlough company wide and that, that was very, you know, that's just data stuff. It's like, we need to save X amount of dollars. Here's a way we could do it. We'll all share in it. But then after like maybe a few weeks of that, we said, you know what? Um, I don't think this is the right move. Let's just the leadership team divvy it up amongst ourselves. And Ash and I will cut our salaries and do the most. Um, and so that was a much better decision. So, you, so my, I guess what I mean is that one started with a financial decision, but then you started to feel cultural impacts of that and other, you know, complications around production and other things that people are taking a day off a week, you know, or whatever it is. So, um, you know, we pivoted to something better and still were able to achieve the same goal. Um, and, and if you ask my wife the same question, she'll probably have a very different answer, right? Cause she's on the marketing side, there's all, there's different problems that she's trying to overcome, right. And how to reach customers and things like that. So she would give you probably a more qualitative answer where I'm thinking more numbers and everything, but, um, try to make it as database, uh, data driven as possible. Uh, whether it's, a, you know, if we put a new product out, we like to survey people on what they're looking for us to do next. And we don't always take direct, you know, uh, initiative from that, but it's, it's informative and, um, we like to surprise and delight and just try and keep doing that. So, yeah, but I'm trying to think of any other examples, but that, that's what comes to mind. I'm curious. You talked about you being quantitative, your wife being qualitative, by and large. Do you find that extends over to the personal side of things within your marriage too? You know, funny enough, in our marriage, I'd almost say it's the opposite. Uh, you know, really? she still Tell me very more. much manages. Well, she manages, she's the CEO of our household, right? And so okay. she is much more quantitative on, um, and organized and, 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 uh, you know, I, 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 my time is pretty much full with better booch. And then in the evenings I'm working on TIP. So, um, you know, she manages the household and I don't know. And it's funny, like the roles totally shift, uh, and to a degree where, um, I think for the household, I'm thinking about just more qualitative stuff. And she's thinking about all the details and all the, the little things and the expenses and the bills and all that kind of stuff. 
Interesting. I wouldn't have guessed. I thought it might just carry over. <laughs> um, anyway. No, she's way smarter than me. I mean, I don't know why she lets me be CEO. <laughs> yeah. uh, man, now she'll have to listen. It's only because she doesn't want to do it, I think. I think it's just because she doesn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Um, but to, to pivot slightly here, Trey, to TIP, you know, here I am interviewing you. Who has been the most interesting person you've interviewed? Oh, that's a good question. The most interesting. And I think? let's let me let me expand the question because I know that you moderated some things at the Bitcoin conference in April at my in Miami Beach. I was there. Um, but yeah, extend it to that too. Any any folks you encountered there as well, not just exclusive to TIP podcasting. Yeah, and you know, I I try to do this thought exercise every year. I, I put out the last two years. I put out a top takeaways episode where I kind of pick my favorite um, clips from the interviews I've done over the last year, and it's usually around okay, what were what were moments that made me go, huh? Okay, I'm either going to incorporate this strategy now, or oh, I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, you know, so it was moments like that, and 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 it, and I what I love about those top takeaways episodes is that it's usually a pretty broad assortment of guests. I mean, it could be anyone from a billionaire legend like Jeremy Grantham to an up and comer like Joe Brown on you from YouTube or, um, Brian Feraldi, you know? And so it, it kind of, these are kind of legends of the future in my mind, you know, they'll be, they'll be well-known, uh, down the road, but it's, it's just kind of a broad spectrum and it doesn't need to come from, you know, the top down, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I, I do have an answer to your question though. I, I want to say, and I, 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 I'm like hesitant to say this because it sounds like a cop out or obvious pick, but I really think my favorite interview to date has been with Howard Marks, and um, and love I love Howard, love his books. Just you know, he's just the best, and he's just the best, and like I don't know something about we just you know sometimes you you can tell when you and your guests um, you're jiving and you you know it's an easy conversation. Other times it's hard to work. And, um, and he was a very easy conversation. He was very gracious, very warm. Um, you know, and I've had other guests who I thought would be that, and they were the, the total opposite. You just never know. Um, so we'll see it's, yeah. It, it's funny you say that because I mean, I have followed Howard Marks for years. I get his um, memo sent to my email every, every month. And I read that, uh, I wouldn't have guessed he'd be that warm because he's so technical. He's so analytical. He's so focused on just how the broader things fit into cycles and things of that nature. I would not have guessed that he would be so approachable, so warm. Yeah. Yeah. He was pleasantly surprising in that way. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, you know, I will also maybe give another cop out, but it's true is, um, I haven't technically interviewed Preston, but except for that Bitcoin panel I did, like you mentioned, um, but he's always the person I think is the most interesting in the room. I, I really truly still think he's, um, just such a thought leader, not only in Bitcoin, but just has a, he's a critical thinker who, who's got a very pr first principles approach and, and comes to conclusions sometimes way in advance of, others that, you know, we've seen, um, and he's been right most of the time. So I, I think he's a really interesting person and I always, I still listen to his Bitcoin show just to kind of, you know, keep learning from him. Totally. And I mean, on the subject of thought leaders, 
uh, what I what I see as the current leading thought right now, specifically with Preston, is this uh, Noster, um, this decentralized mm-hmm. social media platform or whatever. I mean, it's it's funny for me to see his to see his shows come out, to see that in the title here and there, but then to see other people talk about it, um, and it's just like suddenly it's just there. I mean, it wasn't then it was kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah I, Preston, what a great guy. Anyway, go ahead. What's re- what's going to be really interesting, I think is one thing I love about the podcast is that it's such a time capsule. Like there are so many mastermind discussions going back to, I'd say 2019 or so where I remember this, I've told him, but there was an episode where I remember him, Bitcoin had gone all the way down, I think $3,000. And he just said something like, Bitcoin's like looking sexy again, which was just such a non Preston thing to say, (laughs) you know, in a way, in a, in a normal sense. And it just stood out to me. And I was like, that just really got my attention and made me think, okay, maybe I should buy some Bitcoin. Um, and of course, you know, that did really well. And then, um, he was just going up against the grain with his own mastermind group on that show who were all still pitching value, uh, picks. And obviously that's what made Preston even more interesting is he was such a hardcore Warren Buffett value investing guy. And yet his conviction in Bitcoin was so strong and he was um, kept continuing to pitch it on, on those things. So that that's going to be really interesting, I think, to go back and listen to down the road. Totally. And I remember when that happened, and I, I'm ashamed to admit this to a degree, but when I saw that the Bitcoin Fundamentals show was spinning out of TIP, I'm like, they're betraying us. They're betraying all of us Buffett folks, us value investors. What are they doing? Um, but then of course, here I am and I'm a religious follower and listener and I'm a big Bitcoin guy. Uh, so it's funny how that all works out. Uh, but real quick, I know we're coming up on time. Tell me how you landed that gig of moderating the panel at the Bitcoin conference. Cause wasn't, was Kathy Wood on that panel? Did you get a chance to talk to her? I was actually talking with her backstage. She was, I think right before or after us. And, um, and, and by the way, I've interviewed her twice. She's on, she's up there for me as, as far as most interesting mm-hmm. people, a lot of people, um, she's a very polarizing figure and, um, say what you will about her, but she's incredibly smart and, and convincing. Um, I'm not saying I agree with everything she says, but she is very persuasive and obviously just very strong in her convictions. Um, and I just, I think she's great, um, on a personal level, but, uh, that, panel uh how did i get the panel um this is kind of funny so i um saw i remember they announced it and i remember seeing jack dorsey and and and, uh michael saylor and a few other names on it and i texted preston i think and i said you gotta you gotta go to this thing he's like oh no i'm not gonna go i don't go to things like that i was like to the bitcoin conference itself he wasn't gonna go bitcoin he wasn't gonna go if you can really yeah and, um, and I was like, you, you have to go, you like, there, there's no, you run, you have like the biggest Bitcoin show. You have to be there. And he was like, really? And like, cause he's just, he's not like a self promoter. He's not like, that's just not really his. So he wasn't even thinking about it. Um, and I found that so funny, but I, I was pushing him. I'm like, look, I, I'm going to get you on this thing. So I reached out to them myself and I was like, you guys got to have Preston like uh, speak or do something. And they were like, of course, like, yeah, we should definitely have Preston. Like maybe, maybe he could do a panel. And, uh, and then Preston was like, you should moderate the panel. I was like, yeah, maybe I should, I want to (laughs) go. So it was, it was just sort of like, so I guess I kind of initiated it. And then, um, 
we did it, we did the last couple of years and uh yeah it's been a it's been a it's always a fun event yeah because i mean he was on that panel with jeff booth jeff ross and mark moss was that it yeah yeah okay gotcha i really enjoyed that but i've always enjoyed what those guys have to say i mean they're a riot on twitter for those who aren't following them they are just terrific uh anyway so I know, like I said, Preston, I know we're, excuse me, Trey, I know we're coming up on time. Two questions. We're just starting 2023. What are you looking forward to in this year? Um, it's a really good question. To be quite honest Personal, with you, professional, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I, my personal answer is I'm excited to be writing music again. Um, it took a long hiatus, uh, both with better booch and TIP and having two kids and all these things. Um, it's been on the back burner a long time, but you know, Ash and I just felt inspired over the holidays to kind of re-engage in that. And we have been writing together again and, um, you know, making some more music. And I'm, I, I guess my, if my theme for 2023, if I had one would be, um, creating and completing because I, there's something very satisfying about just making something like a piece of music but also there's something very satisfying about something that comes to an end and completion. Whereas, you know, better booch TIP kids, the, all these are just ongoing <laughs> projects, right. That never, that never have a completion date. So, um, you know, I think I needed something like that in my life that felt like it had a conclusion and it had an end date and, uh, and music I found has been a new source of that for me, which I'm really excited about. It's awesome, man. Okay, my second question. Finish this sentence for me. Trey Lockerbie is a blank. Oh, manifester would be my answer, truly. Um, I think that I, um, anything I've kind of really wanted to set out and do, I've gone and made it happen and um, not, not, saying that it was all me like my point is i think i think it's about the universe i mean I, this is my more philosophy side but i think there's a lot of luck involved first and foremost but also just a lot of like putting your intentions out there and f focusing and visualizing them and and seeing them come to fruition and and i've just experienced that for myself in my own career and i think it's a testament to just the different industries you know that i could i've jumped across um and made something happen and out of almost nothing. And, and it's, I, my, I, I credit just the act of mindfulness, the act of intention setting visualization, um, as part of that, I mean, really all of it. So, um, it's nothing I'm doing that's different than anyone else or, you know, that anyone else could do. So I just think that that's something I practice and it's, um, and I, I, yeah, take it seriously. Awesome, man. As we wrap up here, go ahead and give the folks who are listening a handoff where they can learn more about you, Better Booch, all of it. Well, first of all, thank you, John, so much for having me. Um, this has been really a pleasure and you've been very fun to talk to. I appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if people want to learn more about me, they can go to Twitter, maybe uh, best place to find my thoughts personally. Uh, it's just at Trey Lockerbie. Better Booch is betterbooch.com. It's also every handle um, on every social media is just better booch and I'm on LinkedIn, you know, as well. Um, 
and then you know TIP. I would if if people listening to this haven't checked it out, uh, what are you doing? You know, you should definitely <laughs> go check it out. Um, but the investorspodcast.com, especially if you're looking to either learn about investing or uh, or or really the tools, that's that's the key um, benefit that I, I try to promote. The TIP finance tool for one is a dream tool that I've just seen come together and it's something I've you know, wished exists for a very long time and now it does. Um, so yeah, check out the shows, um, check out the tools and, uh, I think that's it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Trey, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. I'll get all of that in the show notes, but yeah, just know that I'm cheering you on. You are doing such great things with better boots, TIP, all of it. Big fan, man. Thanks so much. Thank you, John. And congrats on your show. It's, it's really cool what you're doing. So I appreciate the invite. Thank you. Take care, Trey. Whether you allowed us to keep you company on your ride home from the office, during your workout, or as you were getting ready for the day, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this conversation. Be sure to subscribe and follow CEO Sit Downs on whatever podcast platform you use, and I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review, as it often helps others find the podcast in the future. And if today's episode called to mind a friend or family member who you think would enjoy today's conversation, go ahead and share this episode with them. I would certainly appreciate it, and hopefully they will too. Thanks again for listening, and may you have a pleasant day wherever you may be.